Chapter Five, Parts C and D, of Aces Up. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Aces Up, by Covington Clark. Chapter Five, Parts C and D. Those three days of the Crown Prince's drive on the Marne were dark days for France. The French people listened eagerly for word from the front, and prayed as they had never prayed before, while every American unit, wherever billeted in France, waited impatiently for orders that would send them in for their first baptism of fire. McGee and Larkin, and therefore unmoved by the battle lust that had laid heavy hands on every pilot in France, found themselves itching for action. They could smell battle afar off. They knew the need of air supremacy at such a time. On the flying field and at squadron headquarters, they tried to cheer up the depressed and sullen pilots who were chafing under the restraint of inaction. But alone, in the home of Madame Beauchamp, they freely expressed their feelings. I can't see why this squadron is not ordered up, McGee said to Larkin one night as they sat alone in their room. They are better trained than we were when we hopped across the channel. Remember that day, Buzz? Yes, indeed. That was our big day. It's exactly the same big day these chaps are waiting for. There must be a great need of planes. I understand the German army has crashed through to the Marne. If they pass there, he shrugged his shoulders expressively. They sat for a moment in silence thinking the same gloomy thoughts that were so staggering to all the people of the Allied nations. "'What if the squadron should be sent up?' Larkin asked at last. "'Just where would we get off?' McGee shook his head. "'Don't know, I'm sure. It's strange how we've received no word on our applications for repatriation. I guess we are stuck for the rest of the war. Instructors! Bah! I'm developing an itch for action.' So am I, Larkin agreed. When we were first sent back from the front, I'll admit I was glad enough to come. I was fed up. But I'm fed up here now. And what can we do about it? Well, for one thing, I can go to bed, McGee replied, yawning. Tomorrow is another day. He began unwinding one of his wrapped puttees. Ever notice how much longer these blasted things are when you're sleepy? he asked. Just as he had finished with one, and had rolled it into a neat ball, a motorcycle came popping into the yard. Buzz looked at Red inquiringly. "'Wonder what that is?' he asked. The downstairs front door opened. Heavy hobnail shoes sounded on the stairs. "'Don't know,' McGee answered, looking at the putty roll in his hand. "'But I'll wager it's something that will force me to put this thing on again.' I never got an order from headquarters in my life when I hadn't just finished taking off my putts. A heavy knock on the door. Come in. An orderly entered, saluted smartly, and handed McGee a folded paper. A note from Major Cowan, sir. He said there would be no answer. Very well. Thank you, Rollins. For a moment I thought it might be orders for the front. No chance, sir. We're the goats of the air service. The war will be over before we get a chance. I say they'd as well kept us at home where we could get real food and sleep in real beds instead of these blasted haymows us enlisted men sleep in. Right you are, Rollins. 
I'll speak to the commanding general about it tomorrow. In the meantime, carry on, Rawlins. Yes, sir. A smart salute, a stiff about face, and he was gone. They could hear him grumbling as he went down the stairs. McGee looked at the folded paper. On it, in Cowan's hand, was written, To Lieutenants McGee and Larkin. What is it? Larkin asked impatiently. McGee unfolded the sheet. Scrawled across it were these electrifying words. Just finished talking over the phone to Wing. They inform me that orders have been received approving your application for repatriation. The orders will come down in the morning. Congratulations. Cowan. Red slapped Larkin on the back with sufficient force to start him coughing, and then began tousling his hair. There, you old killjoy, he was shouting. Now stop your worrying. What do you think of that? Larkin began a clownish highland fling that eloquently spoke his thoughts. At last he came to rest, snapped his heels together, saluted smartly, and said, Lieutenant Red McGee, USA, I believe. How do you like that, you little shrimp? Maybe we'll be buck privates, for all you know. No, same rank, Larkin answered. But believe me, I'm free to confess now that I'd rather be a buck in Uncle Sam's little old army than a brass hat in any other. Boy, shake. Part D Sometime after midnight, at least an hour after sleep had at last overcome McGee's and Larkin's joyous excitement, a sleep-shattering motorcycle again came pop-popping to their door. The dispatch-bearer hammered lustily on the barred front door until admitted by the sleepy-eyed, white-robed, grumbling Madame Beauchamp, and then clattered up the stairs two steps at a time. He pounded heavily on the door of the sleeping pilots. McGee fumbled around on the table on the side of the bed, found the candle-stub, and as the flaring match dispelled the shadows, called, Come in! Don't beat the door down! Rollins fairly burst into the room. Major Cowan's compliments, sir, and he directs you to report to the squadron at once. Good heavens! At this hour? What's up, Rollins? Rollins smiled expansively. Orders for the front, sir. They're taking down the hangar tents now, and trucks will be here in the next hour for baggage and equipment. All the ships are to be on the line, checked and inspected, an hour before dawn. The CO said to make it snappy. He said a truck would come after your luggage. It's a madhouse over at headquarters, sir. Both pilots sprang from the bed. Do you know where my orderly sleeps, Rollins? McGee asked. Yes, sir. Go bounce him out and send him up here. Toot sweet. Tell Major Cowan we'll be over on the double quick. By the way, Rollins, do you know where we're going? No, sir. Secret orders, I understand. But I don't care a whoop just so long as it's to the front. Right you are. Toddle along, Rollins. Buzz, light that other candle over there. I can't even find my shoe by this light. An hour later, with all personal equipment packed and ready for the baggage truck, McGee and Larkin reported to Cowan, who was standing outside headquarters issuing orders with the rapidity of a machine gun. All set, sir, McGee said, and thanks for the note of congratulations. In the nick of time, wasn't it? Otherwise we would have been left behind. I suppose so, the Major replied. Fact is, I don't know your status now, and I don't know how to dispose of your case. I called Wing, and was told that your assignment hadn't come down. 
The personnel of this squadron is complete. Here's a pretty pickle. Guess I'd better pass the buck and send you back to wing. McGee's face fell. For once words failed him. He turned his eyes on Larkin appealingly. Larkin entered the breach manfully. Major Cowan, he began, when we made application to get back under our own flag, we did it hoping we'd go up to the front, not to the rear. This sudden order comes because pilots are needed. The better trained they are, the better our chances for victory. I'm not boasting, sir, but McGee and I have been in action. We can be a help. Yes, yes, of course. I'd like to have you in my squadron well enough. But what about the red tape? Wait until it catches up with us. Don't go looking for red tape to fetter us, Larkin replied. Hmm, Cowan mused. He knew, none better, that here before him stood two excellent pilots with a wealth of combat experience. If he sent them back, doubtless some other squadron would draw them, and that squadron commander would be the gainer, he the loser. Still, he had no authority for taking them along. An assignment order would doubtless reach them within twenty-four or forty-eight hours. Still in all, he considered, much can happen in that time, especially to an untried squadron going into action. Such pilots as these were scarce, and many were the commanders who would seek them. Well, he said at last, just what would you do in my place? It was a fair question, and one seldom heard from the lips of a commanding officer. Coming from Cowan, it was doubly surprising, and effectively blocked all pleas founded on sentiment and sympathy. Now Larkin was stumped, but McGee was ready to take up the gauge. Major Cowan, I have been in the service long enough to know that the wise army man always gets out from under. Pass the buck. It's the grand old game. But I see a way out. If I were in your position, I would direct the issue of an order sending us back. But, he added as Cowan evidenced surprise, I'd managed to have that order mislaid in the excitement. Cowan nervously paced back and forth. Suddenly he wheeled in decision. No, he said, I won't pass the buck. I won't shift the responsibility. Passing the buck in training may be all very well, but a commander who does so in action is not fitted for command. We are on the eve of action. Report to Lieutenant Mullins, gentlemen, and tell him I said you were to go along. See that your ships are ready at 4 a.m. He turned and walked rapidly toward a group of ground men who were loading a truck. Larkin's eyes became wide with astonishment. Well, what do you know about that? Say, that bird is going to make a real C.O. I think he is one now, McGee answered. Action does that to men. Sometimes. End of chapter 5 Parts C and D